0: I'm not sure if I'm the only one but I can't help but feel that we're currently in a bit of an MMA lull. August 26, 2017 we saw the UFC lightweight champion of the world in Conor McGregor take on one of the greatest boxers of all time in Floyd Mayweather Jr in a boxing match. And while it was an incredible achievement for McGregor to even be in that situation in the first place, the reality of it left a bad taste in my mouth. A guy who had made a career predicting his fights and emphatically delivering in vicious velocity in a way that really had never been seen before, made McGregor a megastar. He walked the walk and talked the talk. He proved doubters as wrong and created this image of himself that transcended the sports. Fans swarmed to his support and he became an icon. He skyrocketed himself in discussions that turned fiction to fact and had the MMA world believe that he was capable of achieving something that 49 others could not do in a totally different sport to his own. He even had well-respected combat sports journalists, most notably Ariel Hawani, throw logic completely out of the window and place predictions based on belief, on hope and on promise. Even if these journalists backed McGregor to support the legitimacy of MMA against the naysayers, isn't that a role for the fans not the experts? When it was all said and done and Mayweather stood on the second rope, arms raised in the air as McGregor stood back, exhausted and defeated, and this mystique, this idea of invincibility that went unhindered by his loss to Diaz, in the cage, finally ceased to be. This moment, this freeze frame, became much more than a referee stepping in to protect a fighter. It became an addition to a collection of moments that saw icons in the most vulnerable moment, defeated by the image and perception of themselves as this fictional, invincible figure. I'm Tom from MMA On Point and today I'm talking about the curse of invincibility in MMA. When you look at the history of mixed martial arts and combat sports in general, a prominent factor on making sure an event goes ahead is its marketing and how the fight is sold. Because what's the point in two guys fighting for no money, right? Fights are, and have always been, spectacles, designed in a way that put phenomenon against phenomenon, an extension of celebrity culture, a genealogy that derived from the West, which emerged from modernity, capitalism and possessive individualism. It was, however, Japan that polarised such massive celebrity fights, and this was a result of post-war where their whole infrastructure was rebuilt and Americanized into expansive cities and the age of the samurai permanently turned into the age of the businessman. Q. Muhammad Ali vs Antonio Inoki in 1976. Two megastars from completely different backgrounds thrown into one ring and broadcast to 32 countries with an estimated audience of 1.4 billion. Rules were put in place to ensure Ali wouldn't come of any serious harm and the fight was announced as a draw so neither star would take too much credibility damage. Both men would return to their respective sports with their aura of invincibility intact. This was a massive indication that there was an audience for fights of these magnitude, that people would tune in and pay to see celebrity athletes fight one another and risk it all. If we fast forward to 1993 in UFC 1, Art Davey, founder of the Ultimate Fighting Championship, would offer up a unique tournament where martial artists from different backgrounds would compete against each other in no-holds-barred combat. This tournament would showcase various mixed martial arts and determine which would provide as the ultimate. Unlike Ali vs Anoki, this tournament would force a winner. There would be no hiding behind rules and it broke down the strengths and weaknesses of all combat. And of course, you know how the story goes. Hoist Gracie, the unassuming Brazilian jiu-jitsu technician, fought his way to legacy with a succession of submissions that took his larger opponents by surprise. Gracie would go on to win three UFC tournaments and redefine the playbook on what it took to be an elite fighter. His size, his fights and submissions ability made him an instant Start and after a five year hiatus, he was finally tempted back into no holds barred combat in Japan at Pride Grand Prix 2000. In the quarterfinals, Gracie met Japanese fan favourite Kazushi Sakuraba, a man who had beaten his brother Hoyla Gracie a year before at Pride 8. Sakuraba's win over Hoyla sent shockwaves through the MMA community as it was the first time a Gracie had lost in professional competition in decades. After a 90 minute battle at over six 15 minute rounds, Gracie's brother the Horian threw in the towel cementing Sakuraba as the first man to beat Hoist Gracie. This moment was particularly poignant with commentator Stephen Quadros uttering the words he made Hoist Gracie quit several times. It seemed through this loss that the rest of the world had finally caught up with the Gracie family. The sport had progressed and adapted and the fans were interested in where the sport could go. The Gracie aura was shattered and Sakuraba would go on to defeat two more Gracies earning him the nickname the Gracie Hunter. Back over in the States, in the UFC, a new breed of mixed martial arts began to emerge, personified in one man, Chuck the Iceman Liddell. With a mohawk, Japanese lettering on the side of his head and brutal knockout power, Liddell crashed into the public eye, gaining roles in movies like How High and Cradle to the Grave, essentially playing himself a super tough dude. By 2002, Liddell was considered the number one contender for the UFC light heavyweight title and was pitted against ageing competitor and former UFC heavyweight champion Randy Couture for the interim... UFC light heavyweight title as an overwhelming favourite Liddell was expected to win with his dominant stand up and the UFC had done a spectacular job in building up Liddell as the guy and hoped to set up Liddell vs Tito Ortiz for the undisputed title but against all odds Randy Couture pushed the pressure dominated the stand up and ultimately took Liddell to the ground and rained punches down for the TKO win. The loss sidelined Liddell from the main event pitcher for a year which allowed Liddell to regroup, test the market in Japan and for the UFC to re package him as a fighter. It's similar how they tackled Ronda Rousey's first loss, we'll get to that in a bit, but Liddell returned to the Octagon in an immediate title fight against Tito Ortiz and the fight was marketed as a huge grudge match and all else was forgotten. Though this loss to Couture didn't really ruin Liddell's career, and in fact his career would continue to heat up right to 2006, it definitely hurt the legitimacy of his persona for a short while, which went hand in hand with a time period where the UFC was faced with the prospect of folding, while pride flourished in Japan. On the surface, the UFC looked as if it was performing well, broadcasting shots of massive movie stars like George Clooney and Juliette Lewis in attendance at shows, but it wasn't enough to hold for. It would take a new approach to build a product and promote stars that people wanted to see fight each other, and thus The Ultimate Fighter was born, a reality based program that showcased the personalities of fighters, a fresh new take on fight promotion that gelled into modern culture and stars like Forrest Griffin, Stefan Bono, Diego Sanchez, Chris Lieben, Kenny Florin, they all emerged The celebrification of these fighters was a key element in promoting the legitimacy of the sport, conveying them as dedicated athletes with strengths, weaknesses, ambition and doubt. The UFC had created intrigue by moving away from placing emphasis on the brutality of cage fighting and began to establish the power of homegrown star power. That if you, the audience, wanted to see these personalities, how they lived and progressed throughout their career after the Ultimate Fighter, you'd have to tune into the UFC. It was the first real attempt to emotionally connect you to Fighters to personalities that some viewers may not have been able to do by simply watching them fight. Over in Japan, Pride had stars of their own like Antonio Nogueira, Mikro Kokot, Vandalay Silva, and of course Fedor Emelianenko. Fighters became celebrified by the celebration of honourable fights as seen by the Japanese audience, and fighters like Silva and Mark Coleman were thrown into these bizarre commercials. Though it seemed that these massive events and fighters that were just adored by the Japanese public drew big numbers, fights were still at times as freak show bouts, with their top star Enko taking on phenomenons like Zulu Zinio and Hongman Choi, who had questionable records and a lot less experience. Pride had exhausted the amount of times that they could sell their top stars fighting each other, and backed by billionaires, the UFC began to pull away. During the late 2000s, the UFC began to establish dominant champions in each weight class, with a selection of challengers for each champion. Anderson Silva would bark on a legendary run that would see him hold the middleweight title for 6 years with 10 consecutive title defences and GSP would pull away from the competition and become a huge draw in Canada. Countries began to get behind their fighters propping them up as heroes and the Ultimate Fighter series continued to thrive, pumping out personalities that new and old fans could get behind. It was clear that the UFC had found their formula and soon the passion project of Casino Kings Frank and Lorenzo Fattita would become a global phenomenon. Fighter sponsors were scrapped and Reebok Outfitting was introduced as an official partner. Promotions with passion and ambitions were left by the wayside and gobbled up by the UFC. Fighters were produced and pumped out on a conveyor belt and time eventually caught up to the first generation of dominant champions. The once invincible icons of the sport became an afterthought as new, exciting and beautiful champions emerged. They were placed on a pedestal like shiny trophies for Dana White to grab at and parade about. The UFC had stopped promoting personalities in the sincerity of their fighters and went into business creating icons, characters from Television shows were billed as credible contenders and fighters were billed as credible characters. It's sad because legitimate athletes like Ronda Rousey, a woman with incredible skill, pedigree and personality, was thrown into stardom so fast she wasn't able to keep up. She drowned in hate and entitlement and the sport that had made her became her undoing. So, as Conor McGregor sat back against the ropes held back by the referee, it too had seemed that even Mr UFC himself had finally hit the ceiling and the impact of this crash, as many millions of dollars that it made, looked nothing different from the countless faces we'd seen from the past. The big question now for McGregor is how does he bounce back? Where does he go from here? And has this hurt his aura of invincibility in the UFC? Let me know in the comments, I'd love to know your thoughts. What? Did that seriously just happen? Unbelievable. I think we actually did, yeah. We just hit 10,000 subscribers. And only in one month. It's madness. Needless to say guys, we are just completely blown away. We thought after a month we'd only have 100 subscribers and about 10,000 views. We now have over 10,000 subscribers and over 2 million views. I mean, no joke, we thought this was going to be a way slower process than it was. It's just completely insane, and for that reason, we'd like to show our appreciation to you, the subscribers, by giving away a brand new PlayStation 4 Pro with a copy of UFC 2 for free. This will go to one of you with our 10K subcontest.